nothing new under the sun. People today are just like the people back then. The answers that Nehemiah brings forth in this passage are the same answers that we need today in our own lives and in the church. In other words, what worked in 445 B.C. works in 2017 America. Do you believe that? I do. Let's unpack the chapter. I'm going to start in verse 11. We left off in verse 10 last week, so let me read a couple of verses. We'll talk and we'll read a couple more. Nehemiah 4.11. Our enemies said... Now, these are the people talking. They will not know or see until we come upon them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us, that's Nehemiah, ten times, oh, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. The enemy has moved from ridicule and mocking now to the planning of an attack. And they have put fear into the hearts of God's people. And God's people do what when the fear is put into them? They come and they complain to the leader. (laughs) They come and tell Nehemiah that they've heard from the enemy. I mean, you can just imagine the scene, right? Nehemiah, get over here. You've got to listen to this. You know what our enemy's going to do? They're planning a surprise attack when we don't even know. They're going to just sneak up on us, and they plan on killing us in order to make this work of the wall stop. Nehemiah, there's no hope. We need to cut our losses. We need to stop this foolishness. Go back to living in shame. We need to give up. You ever been there? Nehemiah, who's the writer here, (laughs) he wants to know, he wants us to know how persistent they were. He makes a point of telling us that they complained or they brought this ten times. I wonder if he was counting. Okay, that's once. That's twice. Fearful. Discouraged. Hopeless people can be very persistent, amen. Sometimes we listen to the wrong wrong people. Sometimes we listen to the voices of discouragement and doubt and pessimism. I mean, in your life, do you have any negative Nellies? You know, pessimistic Pete's, you know what I mean? I mean, these are the people that have the default of despair. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? The sky is always falling. It's never going to be good. Every problem has a magnifying glass and all the drama they can create. Amen. Amen. We'll never be able to do this. (laughs) You have no idea what somebody said about you. I just want to quit. I just want to move to Montana. I've always wondered why Montana gets the rap on this. You know what I mean? It's where everybody wants to go. 
Maybe uh, you have this tendency because unless things are always smooth, everybody's acting right, you have plenty of money, you're just not going to be happy. Okay, I'm going to give you a little spiritual medicine right here. A change of location, a change of financial status, a change of churches, a change of spouse probably will not fix your problem like you think it will. Because i got to tell you, you're taking your pessimism, your negativism, you're taking your despair with you, and the green grass over there one day is going to turn brown. Right? And then what are you going to do? Encouragement is to make decisions based upon faith and not fear. Make decisions by talking with godly people in prayerful consideration of how God is leading in your life and how His work wants to continue to flow through your life and stop listening to the wrong people. And sometimes the wrong person is you. Verse 12 says that those Jews living close to the enemy were the ones who told Nehemiah ten times how hopeless this all was. So I would conclude this. Sometimes we live too close to the wrong people. You ever lived close to... You just kind of brush up with evil? Or you brush up against that which is ungodly. You just get as close as you can to it, but you just don't want to participate in it. Alan Redpath writes this. He says, I wonder how many Christian people are living dangerously near the enemy. They really don't have any close contact with God's work. No intimate fellowship with Christ. No real heart communion with their God. They're very near the enemy. And the symptoms of that are these. You begin to think upon a work of God and you say to yourself, it's too big. The days are too tough. The circumstances too hard. The pressure of evil too strong. I don't think we'll ever make it. And so you begin to spread discouragement in the ranks of God's people. You know, I thought of the things that we do on a regular basis and to ask myself, ask yourself, is, is what I'm doing living too close to the enemy? These conversations that I'm having, what is it that discourages you or causes you to fear or... Lack faith in an all-powerful, awesome, loving God. You know what? I think sometimes that um, being consumed with watching the news is living too close to the enemy. Is it right if I say that? We fill our heads with all the bad stuff. I'm not necessarily saying we shouldn't be aware. I don't know. Uh, maybe 
Maybe it's living too close to the enemy when we have heated conversations about stuff like players kneeling at football games. Maybe constantly filling our minds, brushing up against people and having conversations about discouraging things in the culture, about discouraging things in our families, discouraging things in our workplaces, is living too close to the wrong people. And folks, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We battle against the principalities of darkness. And guess what? We've already won. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Every time we come into this place to worship Jesus, the enemy is right here with us. You know that, right? He wants to come in here and disrupt what we're doing. He wants to divide us. He wants to spread a negative, bad report. He wants division. Amen? I like what Redpath writes about spiritual warfare going on in a church service. He says, nobody ever comes to a church service and has a neutral effect on it. Now, you think about that for a minute. You think you're just out there having a neutral, you're neither good nor bad for this service or this group of people. You just feel like you're just a spectator, right? Nobody ever comes to a church service and has a neutral effect. No one simply sits down as a kind of spectator to a program. Because if we could only see with spiritual insight into the true character of services in the house of God, we would see that we are conducting a spiritual war. On the one hand, seeking to press home the claims of Christ, and on the other hand, seeking to defeat the powers of darkness. And he adds, and everybody affects the spiritual temperature of the whole. We are a community of faith with a belief in a transcendent God that is worthy of all worship and is the victor over the powers of darkness and evil. We refuse to accept any other train of thought. And when we come together to worship, believing in an awesome God, the enemy is put down. We are edified and we are matured in our faith and we are built up to live a life of faith. And my prayer each week is that when we enter this place wanting to be part of the Christ-centered community, anxious, anxious, anxious to give our praise to our Savior, eager to encounter His truth, ready to change, I'm open to you today, Holy Spirit. Work in my life. Change me. And I pray for God to come and overwhelm the forces of the enemy. I pray that there would be no tension or division, but freedom, joy, and praise. And every person in the room contributes or detracts. One or the other. No neutrality, as he says. And so Nehemiah, he's facing these discouraged workers, these discouraged people of God. He knows, I've got to change this. Something's got to change or we're doomed. 
He doesn't ignore the reality that there is a problem. You ever done that? You see a problem and you just say, I just, uh, that's too big, I just want to ignore it. <laughs> Try doing that with a flat tire, right? It's kind of like that. If you have a flat tire and you just ignore it, go, it's just going to be okay, I'm going to keep going. Discouragement, it can lead to despair, which leads to hopelessness, which leads to some very dark places. So what does he do? This Nehemiah, one of the greatest leaders of all time, what does he do in this situation? And the rest of the chapter, I, I found five things that I just want to bring to you as the way in which we encounter the struggle of the world around us and fight off the discouragement and the despair when it rears its ugly head in our life. He hears all this discouragement, this down in the mouth, this poor me, this we can't do it kind of talk. And we don't have any direct conversation from Nehemiah to them. We just have this in verse 13, action. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the unexposed places. I stationed the people and families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. What he did is he unified around a plan. We have things that we need to begin to step out in faith and do. He doesn't wallow in the, in the problem. He says, here's what we're going to do. You people stay over here in your families. You have your weapons with you. Have your protection with you. But we're going to take steps to see things change. Let me give you a modern day example. One of the huge problems the church faces today is the passing on of our faith from generation to generation. Statistics show us that uh, we are spiritually losing a majority of our kids once they leave home. And for many different reasons, they don't see church as that significant part of their lives, and they just kind of get distracted, and they just kind of walk away and pursue their own stuff. And for years now, I've gone to conferences, I, I read articles, I read books, uh, church leadership circles, and they just lament the problem. It's just, the, it's just the way society is heading today. Look at Europe where almost no one goes to church. It's just the way it is. Not sure anything can be done about it. You know what I say to that? Not on my watch. If I at all can help that. Not on my watch. What if there is something the church can do about it? What if, what if we unify around a plan that would make Jesus Christ so real in the church and to the next generation that they would never think about leaving? What if they knew they were so much a part of a loving, grace-filled, spiritual community that wasn't based on a list of rules or obligations or even entertainment? but real spiritual relationship. What if we were to bring families together and the church would be a support for families instead of uh, pulling them apart? Let's have a shared 
Scripture experience on the Sundays where mom and dad come and they experience the passage of Scripture and their teenagers and their kids are all experiencing the same passage of Scripture. They get in the car, they have something to talk about. Because they've all had the same encounter with the Word of God. They've not been divided up into peer groups so much so that they're so isolated from one another. I mean, I have this vision. Wouldn't it be great to see conversations happening all over the church between teenagers and seniors? Amen? Between children and spiritual aunts and uncles. Everyone a part of everyone else. Kids, teens, parents, seniors, everybody. What about having regular events where the church family is able to play together and serve together and sing together? I mean, could a church be so spiritually meaningful that young people would be launched out into the world just assuming that church was about a community of loving relationships where I'm a vital member and part of it? I wouldn't think of leaving that. It's just life-giving to me. We know that statistics show us that kids leave the church because they don't feel connected to a larger community. It's the number one reason. Far and away. We've isolated them into their peer groups and said, that's enough. And they get to youth group and they graduate from youth group and what have they graduated from also? Because church is youth group. I think we need to change that. Uh, Will there be opposition? I mean, the enemy loves to deceive our kids. You know that, right? He wants your kids. The enemy wants to lead them right out of the church. And he's doing it. And he wants to keep it that way. Verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose, this is Nehemiah speaking, and spoke to the leaders, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I love Nehemiah 4, verse 14. We need to look at God and not at the rubbish. Amen? Don't be afraid of... And you personally can fill in that blank, okay? What is it that... What is it that scares you? What is it that builds despair in your life? What is it that you're afraid of? Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He can do it. And fight, folks. Fight. Don't throw up your hands. and oh. Fight for your brothers. Your sons, your daughters.
isn't it true that sometimes we just don't look at things like this? We don't look at life this way. We just go about our daily routine, doing what society says to do, busying up our lives and running our kids here and there and everywhere and don't have time for spiritual things because we're too busy. We don't wake up in the morning going, you know, I'm in a spiritual battle for my kids. We just don't think that way. And then one day we wake up and our kids have wandered off and uh, we realize that we've been in a battle all these years. And the enemy has loved to just make it subversive and and we haven't fought I'm here to tell you that unless the church you and I remember that God who is great and awesome in other words that word awesome he is the one to be in awe of to be feared in a right way for what He is capable of. Unless we remember that we belong to Him and start to fight, the light continues to diminish in the culture. And the challenge becomes more enormous and our despair becomes greater. And God is saying, "I've I've already done this. I've already secured your victory. Trust me. Verse 17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. (laughs) What a picture of the Christian life. One hand doing the work, the other holding a weapon. So I say build and fight at the same time. Build and fight at the same time. Most people are just fighting. I got to tell you. You know what I mean? They, they, they have their eyes on the problems. They have their eyes on that which is less than perfect. They have their eyes on, well, that little seven-year-old said something. They're going to be this axe murderer or something. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, right? Our mind goes to these places of despair and hopelessness and, oh Lord, please don't let my seven-year-old who said that terrible word. I just want to survive another day. I I, I just hope that Christ returns right away. (laughs) And not because I'm anxious and expectant for the joy that he brings, but because I want out of the struggle. They don't pray for the work of God through them because they believe the enemy that until they get over all of their problems, they're not really useful to the kingdom. You ever been there? Who am I to preach today? You don't know me. I know me. I need to get over my stuff before I become useful to the kingdom of God. I've got to be, you've got to be exactly right in all the stuff that you're doing before you can actually come and be useful to the kingdom of God. I've got to tell you something. We've all got stuff. Amen? We have all got stuff. And if you're going to wait until you get rid of all of your stuff, we need to build and fight at the same time. Uh, You and I, we have an English Bible in our possession largely because of a man named John Wycliffe. 
He was known not only as a builder producing the first English text of the Bible, but also a fighter. What a leader John Wycliffe was. His enemies burned him at the stake. They took his ashes and they collected them all up and they spread them over the River Thames in London. And I'm sure they said, forever we're rid of Wycliffe. Well, they were wrong. The product of his labors, the English Bible, is with us today because he did more than just survive. John Bunyan, fighter and builder, they threw him into prison three times, thinking they could silence him. Instead, while he's there, he pins the Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps the second most loved book amongst Christians today. You can do more than just survive, amen. In fact, sometimes the building of the kingdom of God is what gets the fight, the victory. History is littered with great people who, against all odds, believed in a powerful, transcendent God who could do anything, even when I am in the midst of my struggle. We're getting there. Verse 18. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeteer stood near me. You always need one of those. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we carried on the work with half of them holding spears and from dawn until the stars appeared. The trumpet sounds and we come together and fight together. We build and we fight together. Did you know that we need each other? I mean, look around, look at each other. You need each other. We can't do this alone. They posted a trumpeteer near Nehemiah, and at the first sight of the enemy, he blows the trumpet. Now's the time to come together. God's people rally to face the enemy. I got to tell you, a a unified church is one of the greatest threats the enemy has. Absolutely the greatest threat. It unleashes God upon a community. I could tell you story after story after story where the church, not a local church, but the church in a community came together across their denominational divisions and said, we're just going to love our community, and that community was changed. Crime went down. Prosperity rose. There is something, there's a direct correlation between a unified church and the presence of light and the diminishing darkness. Now that sounds like it ought to be just a no-brainer, right? I've got to tell you, I've lived in this community 22 years now. And I've been part of, I can't tell you, countless pastors groups. I'm part of one now. Seeking to unite the church across denominational lines. You would think this would be an easy thing. 
I mean, when it is strategy number one in God's arsenal, you think this would be a no-brainer. Just have a burden that the church would be seen by the community the way it is meant to be seen. A loving, grace-filled proclaimer of truth. Living examples of God's grace and God's truth. But I have to tell you, it's the most direct threat the enemy has, and he will pull out all the stops to keep it from happening. I've got to tell you about Love Georgetown this Saturday. It's like pulling teeth. It's like pulling teeth to just encourage the church to love our community. As one big united believers, this group, this community that all love Christ, and uh, we want you to know that we love you. Well, I might have to work with people I don't know. Probably. They, they have different theology than we do. I don't know. Well, maybe. And I just got to tell you, as long as we stay in our divided theological camps, we lose. Verse 22, at that time I said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a labor by day. One of the strategies is just serve one another. Just serve each other. There's something spiritually powerful about getting our eyes off of self and just seeing need around us and serving it. Self-absorption in about me and what I want and what I like and my preferences. and Self-absorption is prison. A lady comes in for counseling and she says she's struggling with depression. And uh, the counselor gives her some initial steps to take that include finding ways to serve others in her life. And she objects. Why? Because unless I can fix myself first, I can't help people around me. And you can see right through it, can't you? The problem is that her problem is self-absorption and serving others is what gets her healthy. This passage is all about facing insurmountable odds. For most, that produces fear because I just can't do it. I, I feel so inadequate. Let me tell you, if every time I felt inadequate, I didn't step out. I know I wouldn't be here today. I'd probably be living in some hole somewhere. Somewhere. 
We think, of, we think of the state of the church today and we face insurmountable odds. We look at how many of the younger generation leave the church when they leave home and we face insurmountable odds. And we look at our culture, we see the moral decline and the loss of godliness and even the loss of just plain decency. And we face insurmountable odds. We look at our own lives sometimes of busyness and, or apathy or stress and we face insurmountable odds. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Father, there's so much that... Uh, we see in our culture that I just, uh, I just can't, uh, I just can't uh, just keep maintaining a status quo. Just keep every week just running the machinery of the church, and just every week just keep holding on and. Uh, trying to survive from one week to the next and trying to deal with the stress and the busyness and the schedule and the, the criticisms and the, and the opinions. And, uh, and Father, no doubt across this congregation there's so many that uh, in their families and in their marriages and in their, their communities and in their jobs and they feel the same way. There's a stress level. There's a complication level. There's complexity and uh, if they're really honest with you today it's uh, it's beating them down a little bit and father I think you're stirring you're stirring us to not strike out on our own but come to a place of surrender to come to a place of empowerment to come to a place where we receive directly from you this Energizing, unifying Holy Spirit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then we begin to filter life, we begin to filter experience, we begin to filter relationships through this mission that we're on. This mission to show our kids the reality of the community of believers, to show our community the reality of what the church is. And Father, I just firmly believe that when the community sees the real church, they want to be a part of that. They long for a community that accepts them and helps them on their path that doesn't condemn them, that doesn't judge them, that doesn't tell them how they ought to change, but just 
loves them into the kingdom and lets you work in their heart. So, Father, I pray that as we sing this song, that there would be this realization in my life and realization in every person's heart today that there is a place we need to come. This place of surrender, of power, of grace.